busloads of nurses sent to Midland, Texas by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, arrive at Midland Memorial Hospital. Every morning at 6.45, we have three tour buses out in front of our building that are filled with FEMA nurses that had to come in and basically save our community. That's what they're doing. They're here to save our community. More than 400 contract and FEMA nurses have come to this part of West Texas during the pandemic. Right now they have about 130 working there to help as hospitals have become overwhelmed with patients and the patients aren't just from Midland or its neighboring city, Odessa. As we've gotten into this, we've seen a huge surge of uh, folks from out of county needing our facility because we have the only COVID facilities in our area, uh, let alone just what they normally need. They normally need stroke care, burn care, trauma care. Uh, so having to uh, surge into our facilities has been very challenging for us to, to be able to manage that as well. Dr. Kit Bredemus is the chief nursing officer at Midland Memorial. He has a doctorate in nursing practice and is leading the team of around 350 nurses, which is about 50 fewer than his hospital needs in his hometown. I'm from Midland originally. Uh, I, I grew up here and that's typically the only two reasons that you come out to Midland, Texas is either you have family here or you're following the money. What kind of money can you make in a city that's six hours from everywhere, set on the southern end of an arid plain under a sky that stretches as far as the eye can see. Oil money. Our skyline is littered with pump jacks and tumbleweeds, and it really is kind of that uh, quintessential Texas experience, you know, the cowboys and everyone with their cowboy hats and uh, work jeans or formal wear here. So <laughs> you just throw on a, a blazer and, a, and your boots and your jeans and you're good to go. When people who've never been to Texas think of Texas, this is probably what they imagine. The West Texas oil patch, the Petroplex, a dry, brown, tumbleweedy place where people come to reinvent themselves. They work hard, they get rich, and do as they please. But during a pandemic, doing as you please can be kind of a problem. Bredemus says while folks are perfectly happy to go around wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots as regular attire, masks are a bridge too far for many of them. So it's a stark contrast when you see we've got patients backed up uh, in all areas. We've been closed to out-of-county transfers, so folks in outlying facilities are having to call all the way down to San Antonio, Houston, uh, from West Texas to get transferred for care. Uh, and then just kind of see this kind of blase attitude out in the community. It's, it's a very stark contrast. Midland City Council has not mandated masks, despite a statewide mask order. Well, let's get started. Let's call this meeting the order November 9th, 2020, 9 a.m. And Bredemus' plea at a recent city council meeting. I'm sounding the alarm right now that our health system is becoming overwhelmed and that we are on the same course as El Paso and other hotspots. The only thing that's going to change the trajectory of this outbreak are the attitudes and behaviors of our city and this council, including the required use of masks. Thank you. What Bredemus is trying to get people to understand is that this winter COVID wave has just begun and Midland Memorial is already on the edge. We had to get additional ventilators from the state and from FEMA to be able to continue to operate and, and, and give people ventilatory support. But at one point, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were down to two ventilators in our entire facility, and we started the conversations with who's going to get who's going to get them. 
And, you know, to have those conversations as a healthcare worker are just heartbreaking. As it is, Redimus is preparing his team and himself for a long, lethal winter in which nurses will carry a disproportionate amount of the physical and emotional burden. A winter in which nurses will become surrogates for families who can't be at a dying patient's bedside. They'll be the last faces these people see, the last hands they hold. You know, it, it's incredibly challenging. Uh, I've, I've been in healthcare for, uh, well, this will be my 12th, 13th year uh, of being in healthcare, and, and I've never seen anything like this where we've had to have people isolated as they die. And we know going into it that as they're, they're gripping our hands, saying, I don't want to be intubated because I know I'm going to die. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, yeah, you might. So that's one of the stories that sticks with me. And to hear this kind of cavalier, you know, oh, it's not that bad. It's, you know, I'll probably survive. You know, it's, it's such a low mortality rate. But to see that fear, to have to be there to talk to the families over the phone that your loved one has died, it, it's crushing. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, overcapacity, understaffed, the winter COVID wave. So I check the numbers every day. That probably doesn't surprise you. And nationwide, we've broken COVID hospitalization records every day for two weeks. That's according to the COVID Tracking Project. Around 114,000 Americans, give or take, are in the hospital with COVID right now. Nearly 10,000 of those people are in the hospital in Texas, also a record following several days of new records. And that number is up 23% in the last month. Hospitals across Texas are strained and short-staffed. So let's dive into that, shall we? Let's start 90 minutes northeast of San Angelo in Abilene, Texas. In a COVID-19 ward at Hendrick Medical Center, a nurse unwraps an important piece of equipment, a pulse oximeter, a pulse ox. So the nurses can remotely monitor their oxygen. A pulse ox measures the oxygen level in a patient's blood. Now, COVID-19 can knock the heck out of blood oxygen levels, making them dangerously low. And the thing with COVID is sometimes a patient can't tell that anything's wrong with them. There's this thing called happy hypoxia, where you have this really low blood oxygen, but you feel fine. So the pulse oximeter is an absolutely crucial piece of medical technology. All COVID patients are on continuous pulse oximetry. That's our gauge for their severity of illness for when we move to a higher level. And there's a whole lot of these devices in use at the moment. Hendrick Medical Center is a busy, busy place nowadays, especially in the intensive care unit. So right now we are presently staying over probably 130% capacity every day. And we've been that way for a very long period of time, for over a month. 
130% capacity in the ICU. That means there are more intensive care patients than staffed beds. And notice I said staffed beds. As Hendrick Health Chief Medical Officer Rob Wiley tells us, a bed is nothing more than a piece of furniture without skilled people to staff it. And so we're being asked to manage patients in uh, the emergency room on floors that typically are not ICU beds, but we've converted to ICU beds. Uh, Fortunately, we've had the nursing staff who have been able to take care of it. Because if you don't have the nursing staff, you can't take care of the patients, obviously. Now, see, Abilene is up north, about three hours west of Dallas, right along I-20. Hendrick Medical Center's service area includes about a half million people, so 130% capacity in the ICU. Well, yeah, it's not great. One thing we hear a lot is, well, ICUs always operate near or at capacity. That's normal. Well, okay, sure, but that's pre-COVID. I think that's a great statement that you say pre-COVID, we were functioning close to capacity in our ICU. Now we're consistently functioning 130 to 140% over capacity. This is a unique situation. Our nursing staff, our uh, respiratory therapists, we are definitely stretched to a point that creates um, an environment that when you need to do something elective, specifically procedures, you have to look at it daily to make sure that the bed capacity is going to be there for the patient who comes to our emergency room in the next 24 hours. So it is a big difference. And that capacity issue creates a really problematic ripple effect to the other healthcare facilities in the area, most of which are small, rural, and, well, a lot of them don't even have an ICU. So those small hospitals depend on the ability to transfer patients to Hendrick. After all, it's the largest hospital in the area. It is the largest. We have uh, 95% of the ICU beds. And so our region has approximately 900 beds in it. And if you know that all the ICU beds are at Hendrick Health, uh, with very few in the small communities, we serve the region. And our region is at capacity. And unfortunately, we've been declining transfers. We've not been able to accept those patients. So a lot of patients are being Uh, cared for in the regional hospitals, and they are stretched. Uh, They are reaching out to the state. They're reaching out to other hospitals. Um, Transferring patients from these small regional hospitals is a challenge. So small regional hospitals in North Central Texas are struggling to transfer patients to Hendrick because Hendrick is over capacity, and Hendrick is having trouble transferring patients to larger hospitals in Texas's urban areas. You know, we have struggled transferring patients out. Uh, It is not unusual for a patient who needs an ICU bed to spend uh, 24 to 48 hours in our our emergency room being managed on a ventilator by our emergency room physicians. Transferring out uh, to other hospitals, they're in the same situation we are. Yes, so according to federal data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, more than 170 hospitals in Texas report intensive care units that are near or at capacity. 
Of those, at least 116 report no available staffed ICU beds. At least 25 report more ICU patients than staffed ICU beds. And a lot of those hospitals are in urban areas like Houston, San Antonio, and Dallas. But here's the thing. There are still ICU beds in urban areas because, well, they have multiple hospitals. One hospital fills up. There's another one nearby. That's not the case in rural areas. So let me run those numbers for you again and add a little context. More than 170 hospitals in Texas report intensive care units that are near or at capacity. Of those, at least 116 have no staffed ICU beds. Okay, the context. Your kid gets in a car accident, your parent falls down, there might not be a staffed bed for them. 116 no staffed beds. And of those, at least 25 have more intensive care patients than total staffed beds. So that's when quality of care might start to suffer. You're a hospital administrator and you're determined to treat all the patients you possibly can, but now you have more patients than your staff can handle. You're overwhelmed. The United States has been, by far, one of the worst places in the world in terms of total cases and deaths. And Texas has been one of the worst states in the nation in terms of total cases and deaths. And West Texas is one of the worst parts of Texas to be (laughs) COVID-19. Dr. Sharmila Disanaka is the Chief of Surgery at University Medical Center in Lubbock. She's also the Chair of Surgery at Texas Tech University Health Science Center. I work primarily with the most critically ill and injured patients, so most of my work is done in ICU setting, as well as, of course, the operating room and the emergency room. Almost every day, Dr. Disadaka walks into an overwhelmed ICU. About 100 staffed adult ICU beds, and all of them are full. The healthcare staff are taking this patient to get a CT scan. They have way too many other patients to worry about. The ICU is underwater. Absolutely. And let me just point out that that's actually already with us using excess capacity surge planning. We realized about over just over a month ago that the rapidly increasing COVID numbers meant we would soon be seeing more and more patients sick enough with COVID to need ICUs. And what I think a lot of the general public doesn't always realize is that the other patients who are in those ICUs at baseline haven't gone anywhere. We still have uh, car accidents. We still have cancer patients. We still have all the things that were filling our ICUs before. The story of University Medical Center is very similar to that of Hendrick Health. But here's the thing. Lubbock is further away from the big cities than Abilene is. It's just south of the Texas Panhandle, and it's the only level one trauma center in that rural region of Northwest Texas. And like Hendrick and hospitals across the country, it's not unusual for it to operate near capacity. But again, that's the status quo, and this pandemic is anything but status quo. 
And as you probably know, hospitals in the United States do not operate with a lot of excess capacity floating around. That's another discussion. Should we have more buffer? Should we build in more buffer? Is our society willing to pay to keep more buffer? However, the baseline from which all places in the United States started is that we were functioning close to capacity at baseline. And so when you're functioning close to capacity at baseline, and then you throw in a pandemic that adds huge numbers of critically ill patients very quickly, it becomes very difficult because if you think about it, not only do we need to expand the physical space, add more beds, it's not, we can't just throw a patient onto a bed and call it good, right? You've got to have oxygen supply. You've got to have equipment. But most importantly, you've got to have staff. And that is the key point is these are staffed beds. We can't just magic physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists out of nowhere. Love can't magic healthcare personnel out of nowhere, right? But, but guess who can? The state of Texas. So right now we are using agency staff and we are using staff provided by the state who have come in. We have a few physicians uh, and quite a few nurses who are helping us and they are fabulous and we are so grateful. Uh, They wear black scrubs and so I'm always uh, going out of my way to say thank you and welcome people I see in black scrubs uh, because we really appreciate the help. But even with that, so even doing that for the last few weeks, we are over capacity. My team, and as I mentioned, we are trauma surgical intensivists. There are a whole lot of small rural hospitals in the vast service area of this hospital that absolutely depend on the ability to transfer patients there. First, because it has a big intensive care unit, while some facilities in the region don't even have ventilators. But especially because it's a level one trauma center, It can provide really high-tech services that other hospitals just can't. But it really comes back to the ICU. There are a ton of hospitals in Texas that are what we call critical access. They're intended to stabilize a patient and then transfer them out. They can't really provide long-term intensive care. University Medical Center can that, that was probably one of the hardest things when our hospital is completely over capacity and I don't have an ICU bed. And if someone is shot in a town just outside here, they can bleed to death if they don't get to me. And that was really hard. And fortunately, we've worked out some processes where we can screen for that now and where a patient who literally might lose their life or their limb if they don't get to us in time will find a way to get them in and not let that happen. But you know, we're stretched to breaking point and we're stretching even further. So how this is going to play out if Thanksgiving surge surges more or if Christmas surge piles on top of it, I don't know. Stretched to the breaking point and stretching even further. This is one of the big concerns with those figures that I shared with you earlier. The dozens and dozens of hospitals that are near or at or over capacity. At a certain point, quality of care will suffer, no matter how hard the healthcare workers push themselves, no matter how much they try to tend each and every patient in their makeshift overflow intensive care units. You get compassion fatigue, which is what burnout, another name for burnout actually. And I think the quality of care undoubtedly suffers when people are burnt out, that's one risk. 
Is it ideal when we have to set up overflow ICUs? No, I don't think there's any situation in which a patient whose ICU status who has to board in the ER for a day because there's no ICU bed, there is no way to say that that is ideal because if it was ideal, we would be doing it, right, in regular times. So these are overflow surge methods that we are doing to keep people alive. They are almost certainly not quite as good as the care we would be able to deliver under normal circumstances. And then finally, the other aspect is each healthcare worker is going to end up having to take care of more patients because the other thing is healthcare workers get sick too. And one of the biggest things that might help there is that the vaccine is supposed to come to us next week. And if we can get healthcare workers vaccinated to keep them healthy, we at least can keep that most critical resource going for longer. Because one of our biggest problems has been our doctors and nurses and therapists falling ill. And when they, when we get short staffed, you're basically, you know, we're burning that candle at both ends at very high speed. But Dr. Disanaka is, you know, she's kind of remarkable. You hear it, right? She's managing to laugh and, and smile, even during an interview about a really, really tough situation. And she doesn't really have a lot of control here. She's in a hospital in an inherently reactive position. She can't set policy or prevent COVID-19 surges or car wrecks or gunshot wounds. She can only react and accept. For me personally, I think I went through my sort of five stages of, of grief already because just watching this and knowing this is how it would be. And so I got to my acceptance stage a little bit early and that has helped. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, what has helped me is just realizing there is only so much I can do. But with that acceptance, there's still something else. Here's the thing. A disease we understand. People dying from disease. That's what we do all day, every day. It's sad, it's tragic, but it's what that's what we signed up for. We understand that. I think what makes this particularly hard is when we're in this pandemic situation, this overflow situation, this overcapacity situation, because people are refusing to take some fairly simple, easy steps. And, and I shouldn't say easy, I know they're not easy, but they're a heck of a lot easier than watching someone die in a hospital. And so I think that has definitely made it worse. I think if we were dealing with this disease and you know, everyone did everything they could and we still had a few patients who would die because that would happen no matter what. It would be a completely different viewpoint and perspective. I think for healthcare workers, that juxtaposition of coming to work and seeing both the COVID and the non-COVID patients in less than ideal situations because we are at overcapacity. And then you go to the grocery store to get some supplies before you come home and there's people not wearing masks. That is particularly difficult. These doctors and nurses and everyone else in the thick of this fight, a lot of them feel pushed into a corner by politics that seem to demand you take a stand for your position by wearing or not wearing a mask. And suddenly, healthcare workers find themselves in the uncomfortable role of activist when all they're really trying to do is advocate for smart public health strategies that will save lives. 
Now, remember how Kit Bredemus, the chief nursing officer at Midland Memorial Hospital that we met at the beginning of the show, found himself pleading with Midland's mayor and city council to take a clear and unequivocal stance on the use of masks? Thank you very much. Um, when you say an unequivocal stance, can you repeat again what you mean by an unequivocal stance and the limits to which you think we should take that? When I say unequivocal stance, what I want to end uh, is that the city council will that everyone should wear a mask in public and follow the minimum standard protocols put out by the state. That's it. <laughs> That's all this nurse wants. He wants people to take minimum pandemic precautions, and he wants the city government to help make that happen. Now, does that make him an activist? Does that make him some kind of wild-eyed political radical? Does that mean he wants to take away the liberty of the fine people of Midland? What about personal responsibility? While the call personal responsibility has been uh, recommended many times, we are at the mercy of those who choose not to take responsibility. Encouraging responsibility is not working. I continue to see many people in the city blatantly disregard the governor's order to wear masks, social distance, and avoid crowds. Lubbock and Amarillo, Abilene, Waco, Laredo, and uh, as of this past week, Lufkin, they're all on a list of regions with more than 15% of their hospital capacity taken up by COVID-19 patients. Now, remember what we've been saying, hospitals operate close to capacity all the time. Like Dr. Disanaka says, it's not like the other quote-unquote normal patients are going anywhere, especially intensive care patients. So, it's 15% capacity in these mostly rural regions, but El Paso, Dallas, and Fort Worth, they're on the list too. If the trends in San Antonio and other major cities continue moving in their current direction, they'll also be added. And as hospitals in the major cities fill up, rural hospitals are going to have a much harder time finding anywhere in Texas to send their patients. So it's probably useful now to take a look at how all of this transferring of patients works. So all of the Texas cities we just listed off are actually in regions. The regions are generally centered around the location of the biggest hospitals with the most capacity in their particular areas. So these regions are called trauma service areas. There are 254 counties in Texas and there are 22 trauma service areas. Now, each of the trauma service areas has a regional advisory council, or a RAC, that is responsible for oversight of that area's emergency care. So the RAC will coordinate emergency care within its region. The RACs will also work together to get patients to hospitals with the beds and the staff and the supplies to treat them outside of their home region, sometimes very far away. So let's dive into that system a bit more deeply and head to Trauma Service Area J and Trauma Service Area K. Together, this region stretches from the mountainous desert of the Big Bend border area to the rolling hills of the Concho Valley in West Central Texas. We find Danny Updike in San Angelo. Uh, my name is uh, Danny Updike. I'm the executive director for 
uh, the Concho Valley Regional Advisory Council and Texas Jave Regional Advisory Council. So the RACs, Regional Advisory Councils, oversee each trauma service area. So Updike is executive director of two trauma service areas. The main hospitals in his region are in San Angelo and Midland. Now, things aren't as bad there as they are in Lubbock right now in Abilene. But as you've heard from Midland, they're not great. And yeah, just with the normal winter hospitalizations, uh, these uh, COVID cases are really putting a strain on the hospitals. Many facilities are activating surge capacity, but even with additional beds, you still need people. You still need that skilled staff. So staffing is still a struggle in uh, in all of the uh, West Texas, really. Uh, we have gotten a lot of assistance from the state uh, to supply nurses, respiratory therapists, those kind of people to come in and and uh, assist. Uh, but it's still a it's still a struggle. Like the FEMA nurses in Midland, other types of travel nurses are heavily in demand right now too, both from individual hospitals but also from the state. There are thousands of state-contracted healthcare personnel deployed all across Texas. Most of those come in on a two- to a four-week contract. So there's kind of a rotation constantly of nurses in, uh, leaving, and then new nurses uh, coming in, or respiratory therapists or other uh, areas that they need help in. Um, So that is probably the biggest struggle right now is just keeping staff because you have to have the, you know, so an open bed doesn't do any good if you don't have a nurse or someone to take care of that patient, uh, then it's just an empty hospital bed. And here's the thing, healthcare staffers get sick too. And some of these really small hospitals have really small teams compared to the thousands of employees at big urban healthcare centers. So I had a call from a, a rural facility just earlier today a small critical access hospital, but they're, uh, they've got a problem with some COVID cases with their nurses. And in those places, even one or two nurses that are out is maybe half of their staff on a normal day. Uh, and so they're gonna get try to get some assistance from the state to get some nurses in there uh, to just try to help them be able to keep their doors open, taking care of regular patients that they would see every day. So Updike says that staffing from the state has been enough, but it's a continuous process. Hospitals in his region are putting additional requests in for more staff every single day. But there's a spot of optimism. We all have it, that glimmer of hope for these healthcare workers and beyond. Yes, a vaccine. Now, while it's arrived in the larger facilities, it's still a big TBD for smaller rural facilities. They probably won't get Pfizer shipments because a lot of them just don't have the ability to store the Pfizer vaccine at the ultra-cold temperatures that vaccine requires. And because their facilities aren't big enough or handling enough COVID patients to be anywhere near the top of the list. But that doesn't mean the rural facilities are thrilled about this order of priorities. No, not thrilled at all. Yeah, most of them, um, yeah, I don't want to get too small into the weeds on that. uh, But um, 
I think if I think everything is so rapidly changing, uh, especially from day to day with the vaccine and the distribution and what's available, I think most of them do have an understanding as to why uh, they're not in that first round of of uh, getting the vaccine. Uh, they may not be completely happy with it, uh, but I also do think they understand and, and do realize that the magnitude of getting this vaccine out and around the country since Friday when they approved it has been a, a tremendous task. And that uh, I think they just got their fingers crossed and hoping that it works how everybody kind of thinks it will. Uh, and they'll have those in a reasonable amount of time. Fingers crossed. Okay, so trauma service areas like those run by Updike depend heavily on trauma service areas with lots of hospitals, big healthcare systems, and medical schools, right? So trauma service areas like P, which includes San Antonio. Trauma service area P's rack. And I feel like this is unnecessarily complicated. But anyway, Trauma Service Area P's RAC is the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council. Strack. Hey, great to see you. How are you? I'm doing good. Good, good, good. I'm Zooming with Eric Epley, the executive director of Strack, which is now also the state coordination center. The State Coordination Center plays a key role in figuring out where a patient who can't get care in, say, El Paso's trauma service area can be taken to get care. So it takes a patient from a COVID hotspot to a cooler spot. So I I think what we're going to see over the next three months, and I hope this is kind of how it plays out, is that there are going to be hotter spots and cooler spots, and they will be harder to find, but, but uh, I think it's still doable, and especially in very, very small numbers. We're talking about moving one or two patients here, one or two patients there. You're not, it's not an AMBUS full of 20 patients going to Corpus, right? I mean, you have to think of it not in a hurricane evacuation model as much as like a rifle shot as opposed to a shotgun blast. During El Paso's recent surge, its rack sent several COVID patients to San Antonio. But that's in addition to a lot to Dallas and, and Houston and, and Austin and Corpus and the Valley and Tyler and uh, Midland. I mean, there have been all kinds of other locations that have been load balancing in addition to San Antonio. And that, Epley says, is how you balance the load across the state. And so I think that's the magic is talking to those regions day to day. And we actually have real time communication systems where we can communicate by text. I think we've put together a really pretty solvent system that leverages cooler spots, hotter spots, and tries day by day to solve those problems real time. Does getting one or two patients out of a hotspot hospital really make a difference? Epley says, heck yeah. And if you ask ICU nurses and, and ICU physicians who do this, sometimes the difference in a, it just being bedlam in a, a true crisis and just being a really busy, busy day is one or two patients, right? And it's it's sort of while the next big unit is getting set up down the hall, we have this many people a day and we're supposed to be doing 10 in here and we're doing 13 and there's two more in the, in the ER. And we can probably fix 13 today, we can get by, but those other two downstairs, if we could get them out, when you get down to the 
at the at the where the rubber meets the road and the ICUs and the ERs. It really can be, you know, just a few patients can make a big deal on any given on any given day. It makes a difference for understaffed hospitals. It makes a difference for overwhelmed healthcare workers. It makes a difference for patients. So right now, San Antonio itself is more of a warm spot. There are more than 800 COVID patients in the hospital, which is hundreds of patients away from the peak we reached this summer. So Epley feels okay about where things are right now. Well, I mean, we've already proven we can make it through. We went to 1267 COVID positive in the hospital in in, in hospitals in July. So we know where our top number so far has been, and we were able to, to deal with that, although that was difficult. Um, that, that was a difficult time. So it's a little less daunting if we keep going higher than we went before. We're in uncharted territory, but I, I, my sense is we'll, we're gonna surge to somewhere about the same range, maybe um, hopefully a lot less. He does worry about the human resources, the healthcare workers. We're trying our best to load balance our staff to to rotate in and out out of two or three or four days off at a time with extended and go go to the mountains or the beach or something where you can be alone and isolate, but also enjoy some time off not thinking about some of this stuff. So we, we've done some of those steps. Um, I think healthcare workers in general um, are uh, extremely tired, uh, but th there's not really any other options. So I'm not sure, except come to work. So we'll keep coming to work, and that's that's the job. Of course, Epley's been talking about masks and other pandemic precautions since early in the pandemic, positioning them as one of the best ways to help healthcare workers get through this by not getting sick ourselves and adding to the patient population. Anytime we're taking care of ourselves, we're also taking care of the healthcare system and the workers that have been dedicating their hard, uh, their livelihood to making us all safe. So stay at home if you can, wash your hands, wear your mask, and stay away from people, and we'll help the healthcare system. As winter looms with cases already high, Epley admits he's thought about what might happen if at some point, the entire state becomes a hotspot all at once. If racks maybe can't help each other anymore. If maybe everyone's on their own. Well, he hopes that doesn't happen and he doesn't think that will happen, but says it's his job to think about these things. And he has. For almost 15 years, we've talked about pandemic, uh, you know, preparedness and um there are lots of th things left yet in the playbook that we don't have any reason to use right now. And um, I guess if people take comfort knowing there's additional plays in the playbook, yes, there are. But right now, we need to focus on what we can do to prevent that instead of saying, well, if there's other answers, let's just keep doing what we're doing right now. I would say best thing to do is to limit our behaviors to what we know can work with those proven public health efforts. And uh, um, let's, let's do that and then try to make it through this surge as it comes into play. Let's head back to Midland now, where Kit Predimus has made his plea to city council about masks. But he's also going straight to the people of Midland, trying to convince them personally of the urgency of the situation. 
What you're hearing now is a video he shared on Facebook Live. He's masked and standing outside an industrial-sized white medical tent with cobalt blue doors. I know we've gotten a lot of questions from the community about what is the FEMA tent and what is inside of it. So today I'm going to take you a quick walk through the FEMA tent and just give you an idea of what it looks like inside. You might have had a little trouble hearing him there in the wind, but Redimus is about to lead a Facebook Live tour of the makeshift hospital expansion provided by FEMA. Right as you come in, you'll see that there is two separate sections of the tent. This is our receiving area here, right when you walk in, each side on the opposite. So if you I asked Redimus to describe the tent to me over Zoom this a few days ago. It's a mash tent. You walk in and you've got 14 pallet beds that are there available. Um, it is very, you know, moderate to low acuity care. So we are currently using it as an extension of our emergency department. As we back up and hold critical care patients in our ER, that's automatically going to have a downstream effect. So all of our high acuity patients are now in moderate acuity rooms. All of our moderate acuity patients are in low acuity rooms. Our low acuity patients have nowhere to go. So now we are operating out of the tents to be able to see some of our minor emergencies, lower acuity things, or things that can honestly just be moved after the initial workup. So some of these abdominal pains, um, initial cardiac workups, everything like that. We'll, we'll work them up as quickly as we can in the hallways, and then we have to put them out in the tent to kind of wait and, and stew, and, and like we normally see in, in high peak volumes. So it's sort of a 14-bed overflow area that gives them just a little more space. Now that much of the rest of the hospital is, in some way or another, impacted by COVID. Uh, we've seen all of our surgeries delayed as we've had to take on additional space. We've taken over our antepartum area. So some of our uh, laboring mothers also were displaced for COVID. Uh, we had to take that over for our COVID operations. So it's been very challenging in a, in a small town. Midland isn't exactly a small town, but the tall city is a small city of just under 150,000, probably double that in the metro area. It's sometimes called the tall city because during the middle part of the last century, an oil boom in Midland saw the hopeful rise of a cluster of skyscrapers in the city's downtown, right there in the middle of the plains. An oil bust later, and some of those brash old buildings are vacant and have been for a long time. But it's still a bustling region, and its medical needs are served by Midland Memorial, Midland Health, and two hospitals in neighboring Odessa. So when you look at what is available to us in about a, in a two-hour radius, our hospitals, our two hospitals in the Permian Basin, uh, or three, we serve a giant catchment all the way from the, the border, uh, all the way up to right below Lubbock and Dawson County, all the way out to you know almost San Angelo. So it's a huge swath of land that's made up of lots of little communities that rely on us to, to take that population. So and that's why they found themselves having to add a FEMA tent. There's no frills. There's no uh, advanced technology. It is literally a, a heated and cooled tent. And this is West Texas. So we can swing 50 degrees in a day. You start out with your heater in a park in the morning and you're, you're stripped down to your shorts in the afternoon. Back inside the hospital. And we're seeing not only increased hospitalizations, but they're also staying in the hospital longer. So that's what's really driving kind of this, this pinch point. Redibus says one day last week, they had 258 patients in the hospital, and that's the highest number of patients they've ever had. 
But in Midland's trauma service area, the percentage of COVID patients reported to the state fell just below 15% for seven days. Now in Texas, that's an important milestone. If that happens, then businesses can open up at 75% capacity. Midland, Odessa, and businesses across that trauma service area are doing just that. But Brenhamus says these numbers are misleading. He noted, remember, that COVID patients are staying in the hospital for longer than they did earlier in the pandemic, and some of them are in the hospital for so long, they're no longer infectious. Healthcare workers, for instance, don't need to use PPE when treating them. Yes, they're still being treated for complications related to COVID, but they're not technically COVID patients anymore. Bredemus says that means they don't count toward that 15%. So businesses in the Midland area are increasing capacity. Now, Bredemus is afraid this is going to lead to another COVID surge on top of the current growing COVID wave. He hopes he's wrong. He hopes the people of Midland start to hear his pleas and, you know, even if they're going to go to the store or a restaurant, wear masks along with their cowboy hats and boots, keep their distance, wash their hands. Ultimately, it's all about recognizing that this is not about you, that everything that you are doing to prevent getting COVID is also helping to prevent other people from getting COVID. And so when you Look for look out for your neighbor. When you take care of your neighbor, your community, it is sacrifice. It is sacrificing some of your comfort, some of your freedom, some of your leisure, some of the things that you're used to, your comfort zones. Recognizing that doing so is saving lives. It's saving healthcare workers. It's keeping us from burning out mentally, physically, emotionally. And it is really creating a difference that you may not be able to see but we see it every day when we're in the halls and we're holding the hands of people who are dying alone. Look out for your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor. That's really the essence of what all the healthcare workers we've talked to are asking for. This doesn't seem like a controversial request. Look out for your neighbor. Take care of your neighbor. Especially now that we're in the heart of the holiday season. For many, it's the Christmas season. You know, I love all those old Christmas songs from the 1940s. They really just sound like Christmas to me, like Bing Crosby songs especially. White Christmas, right? I'll be home for Christmas. I love that one. You know, I'll be home for Christmas was written in 1943 by Kim Gannon from the perspective of a soldier fighting overseas. A soldier who could only be home for Christmas in their dreams. And it was a hit with soldiers fighting in World War II and, of course, their families missing them at home. Crosby's rich baritone in that song is shot through with just pure longing. Longing to be safe. Longing to be home. Longing to be surrounded by those you love. You know, just longing. 
Crosby's melancholy in that song hits differently this year than in others for me, and maybe for you too. We're all longing, right? So many families will be divided for Christmas as we celebrate in our own households with only the people who live there to be safe. And then there are those fighting for their lives in ICUs across the country right now. And of course, the healthcare workers that are deep in the battle with them. And according to numbers from the COVID tracking project, every 33 seconds right now, one of those patients will die. By the time you've listened to Crosby crooning about his wistful wish for Christmas togetherness from beginning to end, five people in the United States have died of COVID-19. So that's why the messages we've heard from healthcare workers in this episode are so important. We have to celebrate differently this year so that we are all around to celebrate together with those we love next year. That ache in Crosby's voice from almost 80 years ago, it feels like a living current in my heart right now, and Gannon's lyrics resonate again. This year, I'll be home for Christmas. I hope you will, too. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Special thanks this week to NPR's data editor, Sean McMinn, for his contributions to the show. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>